This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You're listening to Oh Behave with the Bearded Behaviorist. Here we consider, discuss, and learn about behavior and the behavior sciences. Here is your host, Brian Middleton. Hello and welcome to behave with me brian the bearded behaviorist brian middleton uh and my guest today veronica howard um veronica is a phd and bcbad assistant professor of psychology at the university of alaska anchorage a graduate of university of kansas um she is a part of the open education research uh, group um, as a fellow from 2018 to 2019 founder of the Alaska Association of a Behavior Analysis and um, a founding member of uh, the Applied Behavior Analysis Open Educational Resource Special Interest Group. Welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Um, All right. Monica, I believe we're going to be talking about um, your specialty, Open Educational Resources. Oh, it's so strange to think of that as my specialty. But it does seem really appropriate, right? Because this is one of the first episodes of the podcast. And if my memory serves me right, this is an open podcast, right? Yes. Um, And you can tell us a little bit more about that. But this uh, podcast is specifically being licensed under um, an open resource license as long as attribution is given. Um, So it could be used for profit or for private use and the like. And you can tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. So when talking about open, like big O open, really that refers to licensing and open educational resources just happen to be one of many types of materials that can be open. When we're talking about open educational resources, there are any materials that you can freely download and edit, you can refine and you can share them to better serve whoever your learner is going to be. So in my case, I'm an assistant professor at the University of Alaska Anchorage. So a lot of my uh, materials that I create tend to be educational. They tend to be for my students. uh, And this is often at a kind of lower division student level, but I also create some training resources for folks. And when I'm creating those, I tend to put uh, an open license on them. The one that I'm most likely to use is a Creative Commons license that permits people to share them, but not to profit from them financially, just because of how, you know, my personal opinion about the way the license should be used and, and the way in which I want my contribution to be made to the world. But I think I might be putting the cart a little bit before the horse 
talking a little bit about OERs or open educational resources. When we talk about open, we're typically talking about a license that permits something called the five R's and that's the letter R. So these are five usage rights uh, that are given to the user from the person who created the materials. Okay. Um, so what would the first R be? Well, at a bare minimum, the user has a right to retain that material, whatever that material is. It could be an image, it could be this podcast, could be a textbook, but they have a right to have a copy and keep that copy. Okay, so if someone were to say download this podcast and uh, keep it on their phone, their device, uh, their computer, something like that, maybe they would like to burn it to a CD uh, or um, if they feel so inclined to be retro, uh, transfer it over to a cassette and that retain would allow them to be able to do that. Well, it would definitely allow them to download and keep their copy. But some of the others that you mentioned, like burning it onto a CD, that might fall under a different usage okay. category. Uh, what category would but, that fall under? Well, it would probably be the redistribution because you're changing the format from like an MP3 file or, or some other audio file to that CD. Okay. And so that's like more complicated kind of copyright stuff, the, the redistribution aspect, which it, for the most part, you don't have to be super savvy with. But at a minimum, talking about keeping it in whatever format, you got it. That's one of the five R's. Okay, so retaining is if I distribute it as a video, as well as as a podcast and they download it and save it, that's fine. They can keep it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then the next one would be like reusing that content. So if you were to, like you just mentioned, uh, you're, you're using that content in a different way. So maybe I'm cutting a piece of this to insert into my class to share with students. Then I'm reusing that material in a different way than what I originally used it as. Okay. The third one, the, the third R, is the right to revise. And when you're talking about open educational resources, this one is really, really valuable. When we talk about revising, we're saying you're modifying the content, you're altering it, you might be making it a little bit better, more refined in some ways. Okay. So for instance, when I teach uh, general psychology, one of the biggest frustrations that I have with introductory level psychology courses is that the chapter on learning is always really poorly written. You know, it presents reinforcement like you give the learner a cookie and then suddenly the learner does all of this extra behavior. And you and I both know that's just really wrong. Yeah. So with an open educational textbook, I can actually go in there and edit the sections on learning to make it more precise, to make it more refined. Okay. So um, revise falls under refining. Does that also cover things like um, also translating into other languages? Um, oh, absolutely. Okay. So if you needed to, for instance, uh, prepare this material, or if, if there was a fan out there who wanted to take this podcast and do a translation, if you have a Creative Commons license on this podcast, they don't have to come to you for permission because inherent within that Creative Commons license is the permission to translate it into other languages. Although if anybody does decide to do that with this podcast, please tell me because I just would celebrate the heck out of it. That'd be so cool. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, the fourth one is a, a really fun kind of creative use of material, and that's remixing material. So taking different bits or different content items and putting them together into a new product. 
So if I'm supporting students who are out getting practicum experience, for instance, maybe I want to take a little bit of this uh, podcast and I want to transcribe it for students and I want to take maybe a video over here about you know, appropriate interactions with clients and how to respect and provide autonomy. And maybe I want a chapter from this textbook. What I could do is take all those different pieces and put them together and create a new set of materials or a new kind of module for my learner. And that's the remixing opportunity that OER provides. That's that's really fascinating. Um, and I'm glad you brought that up because um, I my understanding is that Creative Commons, at least in the United States, also allows for some use or remixing of even copyrighted products if they're for educational purposes that are not for profit. Um, I'll give an example. I uh, recently on my Facebook page, Bearded Behaviorist showed a, a video of the right way to um, show physical prompting where it was uh, a, a child who was learning to do a standing jump and then I don't know if it was his father or his mentor or somebody uh, after he did multiple jumps and failed, that man stepped up behind him and show and, and did a gentle physical prompting of showing where he should hold his hands and how he should hold his back. Um, and then the child jumped and succeeded. And I use that as an, an example of, of appropriate physical prompting modeling because um, there was consent there it was not forcing there was the the hand over hand was very gentle and it was very reinforcing for the kiddo um, to be able to succeed at the the task he was trying to do um, the reason i bring that whole long story up is because um apparently a company out of italy holds uh holds the copyright to that video um and i didn't know that. Oh. i found out about it um by them putting a request through uh for crediting them. And I had no problem with crediting them, but it sounded like they were also demanding um, money. And so I responded mm -hmm. to them and I looked up the appropriate laws and I said, according to Creative Commons, this is for educational purposes. I am not seeking to make money off of this. And they responded back by saying, thank you for letting us know your intent. And we have no problems. We're relinquishing all claims on the video. Oh, that's lovely. So, you know, it, it was it was okay. nice how everything showed like that. But um, that that also relates a little bit to, to this topic, does it not? Well, it does. When when you're talking about some of the exceptions or, or ways in which you can actually use copyrighted material, I think the scenario that you described probably better encapsulates this idea of the fair use exemption fair use, to that's copyright. Right. Fair use was what it was. The law yeah. like that. So fair use is, it's a, it's a bit of a bear to wrestle with. When you're talking about kind of copyright as a whole, and maybe we'll come back and we'll do an episode someday if you want to have me back on the show to talk about like traditional copyright laws and what it's for and why. Um, fair use is, is one that we see used pretty often as a defense to using copyrighted materials for different purposes. And at the risk of oversimplifying fair use, there are four major elements that say whether or not you can use something that is copywritten, right? Something protected under copyright mm -hmm. law. It's the purpose and character of why you're using it. So you mentioned that you were using it for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the nature of the copyrighted work. So some works are a little bit easier to use in more transformative ways than others. 
um, that one's a little bit more tenuous and, and maybe a little bit more difficult to explain. But the third one, I think the, the place here where it was very simple to understand, because I did see your video, it was a pretty short clip, yeah. right? So the amount or substantiality, the amount of the material that you use that was copywritten was very, very short. And the purpose of the work that you were using it for was educational in nature. So those two taken together were, you know, strikes in, in your favor. They were tallies on your side of the board of fair use. The last one is the potential for the, the impact on potential market value of the copywritten material. So in your case, it sounds like a really good fair use example. A different example might be, uh, you know, spoiler alerts, but I feel like the Harry Potter books came out like 15 yeah. years ago. So this is fair, right? <laughs> yeah. So I remember at the time that there was, and I'm going to try to keep it as vague as possible just in case people haven't read Harry Potter yet, but there was after um, a pretty big surprising loss of a character in the book people, the internet is a dark place. So people were just spoiling the fact that a character uh, was no longer in the books mm -hmm. anymore. And there would even be these like t-shirts that you could buy that say like, page this, go there. This is what happens to that character. Okay. And you can imagine that Warner Brothers shut that down immediately because essentially what they're, they're challenging there is one, it's very for-profit. Those t-shirts were certainly yeah. for-profit, but Two, they were spoiling the story and they were really jeopardizing the substantiality of that book when when that passing or when that event occurred. So they, they were saying, you know what, this is inappropriate. You need to stop doing that. And the, and the folks creating those T-search actually had to stop. They didn't have a fair use defense for spoiling that part of the okay. story. Uh, sorry for that, that side quest, but th it was definitely... <laughs> definitely fun and, and I learned some good things there so thank you <laughs> of course and I think so we went through the four hours so far we talked about retaining it or keeping a copy reusing it uh, in different places revise it. so reusing it exactly mm -hmm. as it was found revising it or modifying it remixing it combining it with other stuff and then last possibly the most important one especially for for behavior analysts who like to share resources is the right to redistribute those resources. So if I find something really cool, I can email it to you, Brian, and you could share it with the whole Facebook world because Creative Commons licenses, at least some of them, allow you to redistribute what you find. Okay. And that, that goes back into what we mentioned. I kind of jumped the gun there a little bit about copying it onto other mediums and so therefore changing the format type as well when it comes to the Oh, yeah. And it's interesting because copyright law, it's got all these like different pieces and, and bits to it, but there's the, the having part of copyright law, like the possession of it. There's the modifying part of it. And then there's the distribution part of it, which each of them is its own set of permissions and rights, et cetera. It's amazing copyright law, but uh, Creative Commons licenses typically will give you all five of those major okay. rights. And then, of course, you mentioned previously that uh, something that is open tends to be free and tends to be digital um, because it makes it for ease of distribution, I'm assuming. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, it's, it's not the only way. So we say it tends to be free, but it's not uncommon to see... In, in some places that a uh, openly licensed material might be available only behind a paywall. So maybe you have to be a member, and then once you've paid a membership fee, you get access to it. 
They also tend to be digital, like you were saying, for ease of sharing or downloading. So remember in my definition, they're things that can be easily downloaded and edited to serve users. So they tend to be digital, but they're not exclusively digital. The textbook that I use in General Psych is the OpenStax Psychology Textbook, and they have a printed version. The printed version itself is also uh, openly okay. licensed. And I'm assuming that when printed versions are, are sold, that they tend to be that there, there tends to be a cost because there's a printing cost involved and that sort of thing, correct? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the OpenStax folks produce a wonderful line of textbooks. They have text for like the 40 largest uh, enrolled courses at the undergraduate level. So things like mathematics and American history and psychology and economics, these wonderful full color, hard uh, bound textbooks. The book I teach, for instance, is I think $38. If you buy this four or $500, or excuse me, four or 500 page textbook, full color, beautiful. Uh, the book that I last taught with that wasn't open is now about $250. Wow. And that's, that's a trend that's been going yeah. along for a while now, hasn't? If I remember correctly, I, I was looking and this is not factual. This is more me trying to recall. I believe the trend in textbook costs has been going up significantly since the 70s. Does that sound about right? Yeah. So the cost of textbooks from memory has increased about 800% in the last 30 years. And they've outpaced other consumer goods. So if you look at like the cost of owning a home, that has increased less quickly in the consumer price index data than owning textbooks. The only other things that have increased as quickly are the costs of tuition and the cost wow. of healthcare. And those are two vital things that we need to figure out how to make more people more accessible to. Uh, Yeah, they, they fundamentally talk about issues related to access yep. and, and health. When you think about education, it's, it's about economic mm -hmm. mobility and seeing that the materials that you need to be successful in college and heck, even college itself, the, the rising cost of college, the dramatic inflation of tuition, it, it becomes a systematic barrier to keep people out of higher education, which then means that if you don't have those resources, if you don't already come from a family who has those resources, it's just a lot harder for you to be able to achieve that same outcome. And we know for certification that in order to get your BCABA, you have to have a four-year degree in yeah. something at least. To get a BCBA, you need a master's degree. And... Um... The, that's one of the reasons why um, the the uh, open education um, special interest group for ABAI was created. From my understanding, is we want to increase access so that people have more um, likelihood of being able to successfully um, access the knowledge that that frankly behavior analysis offers that can change people's lives in a dramatic and drastic way. Um, and isn't that also a part of our ethical code to disseminate the science? Well, we have always had the vision that behavior analysis, which would save the world, right? Skinner spoke regularly 
often and, and usually pretty loudly about the fact that this is a wonderful science that could solve a lot of the problems that we have in the world. And I think at the time, there wasn't as much consideration about what exactly that meant, like what it meant to give away behavior analysis, what it meant to disseminate mm -hmm. that to an audience. So we've always sort of struggled with the idea that people don't seem to be very keen on behavior analysis. We tend to conceptualize this as an issue of, well, people don't want to come to us to learn about this kind of weird, maybe a little bit off-putting science. And, and I'm saying that affectionately. I love behavior analysis. Uh, but we always kind of push the responsibility onto the the user, the potential user for not coming to us and drinking the water when maybe we need to be looking at some ways in which we can make the water a little bit more repetitive yeah, or at least exactly. make it easier to get to. And uh, as somebody who was a special ed teacher for seven years and um, struggled with behaviors in the classroom and has been a lifelong autistic and struggled with my own understanding of my own behaviors and, and the behaviors of people around me. Um, I can tell you that uh, once getting past that 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 little bit of an off-putting hurdle, as you mentioned, uh, that slight off-puttingness and past that hurdle and getting into um, behavior analysis and understanding the mechanics of behavior, um, man, life mm -hmm. has gotten better. Life has gotten better for me. I've been able to help yeah. so many individuals. Um, <clears throat> it's increased my ability to be compassionate. Uh, I've, I've been able to help parents and teachers understand new things. And um, frankly, I, I, while I don't think behavior analysis by itself solely strictly is going to be the air quotes here, savior of mankind, air quotes out, I do believe that it mm -hmm. is a piece of the puzzle that is going to help us to be more effective um, at communicating with each other, at understanding each other, and um, even though at the beginning of behavior analysis, it feels very dry and a lot of it's very mechanical in its logic, um, I've noticed that uh, I and others who have been studying alongside me have become more compassionate because, because we understand now yeah. why the behaviors are happening, which means instead of it being an, an issue of, of blame or an issue of failure on some part, it's more of just, oh, okay, I see what, what's going on here. And now I know what I can do to help. Yeah, yeah. I once had a student, and I feel terrible that I can't give attribution for this idea because I really want to honor this student's comment. But one student once described it to me once they'd been through the course and they started seeing the way in which like simple behavioral principles were appearing in their everyday life. They said, it's like yeah. seeing inside the matrix. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, do you remember the matrix? So it's like just ones and zeros and everything. And of course the Wachowski sisters, bless their heart. They had, uh, you know, all the other figures in there, but just this idea that it's so simple and, and basic principles govern what it is that we're doing. It, I thought it was a really apt way of describing the way your perspective shifts when you start studying or when you really start yes. becoming a behaviorist. But, um, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. So I, no, I think we were, I think we were talking about OER before <laughs> yeah. we started talking about so, the matrix. Uh, let's, let's go back to that. Um, what are some, uh, so we, we, in behavior analysis, we talk about examples of what is. Uh, could you give me examples of what is not open resource? Yeah. 
Yeah, this one is always really tough because knowing exactly what we're talking about with OER is important. And so we talked about the five R's. We talked about a little bit about Creative Commons licenses. Uh, and we talked about that example that you gave, which was really, really beautiful. The one where you had used the resources that someone else created to, to create new educational content. So OER is the licensing part of it. It's the permissions. It's the resources that are created that can be shared by virtue of that Creative Commons license. The problem is because most of these resources tend to be digital and they tend to be free, we think of any free to access resource as being an OER when it's really, really not. So just because you can get to it and just because it's free for you to access doesn't make it an OER. The perfect example of this is like Khan Academy. Khan Academy originally created a lot of educational materials and they were once licensed under a Creative Commons license. But since about 2015 or so, and that's from memory, so please you know, don't hold me to that date, for the past few years, their materials have no longer been openly licensed, which means that I can go to their website and I can watch their videos on their website, but there are other things that I can't do. Like I can't download them from their website or from YouTube really without violating YouTube's terms of service. And as behavior analysts, we have to think about that, especially when it comes to the ethical and professional compliance code, because we're prevented from downloading those videos. Yeah. Much. And that's a, that's a big deal because if we're not following our ethical code, even in something as small as um, using copyrighted materials that somebody else has created and and that, that leads to that slippery slope concern that we have with behavior analysts of, well, we can justify um, this, that, or the other because we're doing it for this reason. And uh, so the ethical code really needs to be our personal code as well as being the, the code that we're, we're, that we're required to follow as behavior analysts. Yeah, and if for whatever reason the code doesn't really align to the way in which most of the field is conducting their business, then either the code needs to change or the field needs to change. But that document should really be guiding okay. our professional. So, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. But think, but I'm thinking, think back to the the video example, like creating an educational video. Uh, for a user, like you took a small sample of video, you had a perfectly good, uh, yeah. a pretty good fair use defense to that. It is a pretty slippery slope because think about how it would be if you had a colleague that you wanted to be very successful in, for instance, creating training resources for a client or heaven forbid, preparing for their their exam. Like you'd want to give them every resource in the world to, to better benefit them so that they could pass their exam or to be successful in their programming for clients. But what ethical obligation do you have to honor copyright when that happens? That, that's a very good example and one that um, is very poignant since we all know what it's like to prepare for a big test. <laughs> Yeah. And, and really what we want, we want others to be successful. We want to be able to share this. I mean, fundamentally, forgive me, I, I say this again and again, and it, I know it, it's not always the most user friendly, but the idea that copyright is really meant to protect and incent creation, but knowledge is not a rivalrous good. Like if, if I wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, I didn't, okay. just for the record, <laughs> I did not write Fifty Shades of Grey. 
But if I did, I'd be very upset if a person came in and like took the most critical pieces of that work, right? Those snippets of details and whatever, and like passed it off as their own story. I would be very upset. Uh, And it would jeopardize my market value, jeopardize my ability to make a lot of money off this very important love story between a man with a lot of money and a girl with no sense, right? That's that's me editorializing. I'm sorry. But but when we're talking about science, though, those are very different kinds of information. This isn't the story of like Anastasia and what's his name. This is the story of how the foundational principles of science work as it comes to human behavior. And knowledge is a non-rivalrous good, which is why I'm just so thankful that we have the kinds of licenses that allow us to share this content with others really easily and make it a lot easier to communicate permissions, to have those conversations about copyright law. Uh, to to talk about how we want our work to be used and honored and how, as a creator, you can honor me when you're using my materials. Well, um, along those lines, you mentioned um, open access. Could you clarify some differences between open access and open educational resources? Oh, absolutely. Because the terms get bandied about a little bit like they are the same. And when we're talking about open educational resources, we're, we're talking about those things that are really intended to be educational in nature. Whereas open access, we're talking about something that you can get to and you can access for free. Typically, the term open access is used to refer to like uh, coding for programs or uh, our uh primary sources, like our articles. So for instance, that um, the article that I recently published in Behavior Analysis and Practice was shared as an open access article. When we talk about open access, it really just means the ability to get to it without there being another copy or without there being a paywall between you and the material, but it may not necessarily guarantee access to the other permissions of uh, downloading it, distributing it, editing it, some of those other usage rights. So a good example of of common everyday open access that we have would be YouTube videos. If someone were to publish um, a YouTube video on a topic, say within behavior analysis, because that's what this podcast is about, um, that them publishing it and and having that available means it's open access but unless there's something indicating it's open educational resource it's just open access that's it i think yeah i think you could conceptualize them the same way open access tends to only be used to refer to uh scholarly articles or um programming language, but I think that you could take the same kind of principle and apply it to many of those free to access resources. Uh, My colleagues in and I tend to use the expression free to access rather than open access, because when you start using the word open a lot, it gets really confusing. But yeah, open access or free to access materials do a lot of heavy lifting and there are a lot of really wonderful creators out there. So folks like... um, Brad DeNovi, uh, Ryan O'Donnell, you know, they each have web series. Amanda Kelly shares her resources openly, uh, but those are free to access rather than open. The only open creator that I know of is okay. the and, guys yeah, over so at like for, uh, And are, do you know if they are uh, open education resource or is it strictly open access that they're publishing them? 
they have been leading the charge in open educational resources for years. So if you go into any of their YouTube videos and you look at the actual permissions that they provide, they state very clearly sure. that those are open educational resources. So they've been doing this for a long and, time. Uh, and to be such fair, I'm really excited. I, I hope to have both of them on and uh, talking about behavior analytic principles. Um, they were the, actually the ones that inspired me uh, to start this entire process because as I was studying behavior analysis and going through uh, trying to clash those neurons together and understand concepts, I thought, who has? And uh, and 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 Ryan and uh, yeah. and them are, are, were the first ones that I saw and the first ones I interacted with, and um, and so this is this is as much a uh, a, a, slip, a salute or tribute to them as it is a uh, an idea that that will further things. So, well, and honestly, if any of the folks listening to this podcast haven't yet visited Sitecore, I mean, they should stop by, see the the resources they have, and and send them a message. It takes hours, days to put together the resources that they've created and to just share them so openly with the world. It, it's an amazing contribution that they've made to the field. And I worry that maybe they don't get enough And uh, my understanding is they also have for it. a um, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook account. And so it's it's definitely worth following because um, amongst other things, they, they, they there's some great entertainment value there. They Those guys have a great sense of humor and are definitely worth um, – seeing and hearing the the fun sorts of things that they're sharing and and uh and and making accessible for all of us perfect well is there anything else that we need to know about um open uh, open educational resources um why is it that this matters You know, it, it matters because when we're talking about our field, when we're talking about behavior analysis, we truly believe that we have the potential to reach everyone and to help everyone to change socially significant behavior for the better. Uh, but we can't deny the fact that we have uh, systemic barriers that are keeping folks from contributing to the field. If we are really serious about diversity and inclusion and making sure that everybody has an opportunity to learn and use behavior analysis to better improve the quality of their lives and the lives of people around them, we really need to be thinking about the access to our science. So I I highlight this, I outline this in the article that I mentioned, uh, it came out in Behavior Analysis and Practice, a special uh, issue on diversity and inclusion. So if folks are interested, that is an open access article. So please just get in there, download it, share it, by all means, give it to everyone. Uh, and we also have the Open Educational Resources Special Interest Group. If there are materials that you don't see that would be of benefit to you or to colleagues, just let us know, because there's a lot of us out there who want to be of use, who want to share this information back, and just giving an idea of what folks need, that would be a great first step. It's also a wonderful way of getting involved. And I think it would be a good idea if you're all right with it, me having a link um, in the podcast description to your article, um, as well as a link to the Open Education Resource Group. Um, if there is a, a central location that we can share a link to, 
Um, I feel like if people, if folks, if any of you want to get involved with that, um, let's grow together. Let's uh, let's disseminate the science together. This is an amazing opportunity, and technology has moved forward in such a way that um, really there's no reason for uh, it not to be easier for folks, um, parents, teachers, students, everybody to be able to access this information and learn it and uh, and make the world a better place a little bit at a time. Well, perfect. Um, are there any other things that you want to uh, go over and, and talk about? Um, or maybe some other examples of open educational resources that folks might be aware of or have encountered? You know, I think as a, a gentle introduction to open educational resources, we have really talked about a lot. If folks are not in, familiar with this particular uh, field uh, interest, this can be a lot of content. So uh, it would be a pleasure to answer any questions that folks have, or if you're interested, maybe come back and share a little bit more about different facets of copyright law or other types of open. Uh, but for now, yeah, just getting folks involved, getting them directed to some of those resources that we've mentioned so far, um, and getting them involved in the community so we can maybe start reaching or making some upcoming goals like, do we have open RBT training? Do we have maybe an open introductory textbook in behavior analysis? Anyone who wants to get involved, it would be great to have uh, folks in. But otherwise, yeah, I think this has been a, a nice primer to open educational resources. Well, I'm resources really grateful for you coming for on and, and being one of my first guests, Veronica. I really appreciate it. We, we hope to have you back and maybe we can talk about some more um, educational resources, open, open education. Um, and if you're filling up for it, maybe we can talk about some other uh, topics in behavior analysis itself. Uh, either way, thank you very much. Um, really, really grateful for you taking the time. Um, folks, uh, please subscribe to the, um, the podcast. That way we have more reason to continue sharing this. Um, please share this podcast as well as other fantastic resources. And um, the invitation is definitely out there. Please come and join us in uh, perpetuating open educational resources, especially in applied behavior analysis. Um, this is an area that we could really benefit all hands on deck. And uh, thank you very much for being a part of OBEHAVE and uh, hope you have an excellent day. Thank you, Veronica. Thank you.